I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. In 2009, the public expressed alarm after learning that DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, had agreed to fund a military robot that could turn organic material into fuel. The robot, called Energetically Autonomous Tactical Robot, or EDER, combines a steam engine with a biomass furnace to propel an autonomous robot that can search out its own fuel. It has a chainsaw arm and cargo space for smaller robots. And news about the project sparked sensational headlines like military building a flesh-eating robot to feed on the dead. Some people freaked out, And then the company released a statement. We completely understand the public's concern about futuristic robots feeding on the human population, but let us assure you that is not our mission. Eater runs on fuel no scarier than twigs, grass clippings, and wood chips. New sites released corrections saying, no, the robot will not feast on dead people. It is strictly vegetarian. And it was pretty much forgotten. And like that quote you read, David, the company that makes the engine, Cyclone Power Technologies, released that statement saying that the robot doesn't eat anything scarier than twigs. But a project overview by the company that makes the actual robot, Robotic Technology Incorporated, goes into a little bit more detail. What does it say? Well, it lists a a number of fuels it can run on. So it covers that the combustion is external so that the engine can run on any fuel, whether it's solid, liquid or gaseous. And this means anything from biomass, agricultural waste, coal, municipal trash, kerosene, ethanol, diesel, gasoline, heavy fuel, chicken fat, so that's not very vegetarian, palm oil, cottonseed, algae oil, hydrogen, propane, basically whatever you can think of. And it can run on all that either individually or in some sort of combination. Okay, so maybe the robot isn't strictly vegetarian, but I guess what they were saying is they would never tell the robot to eat anything other than plant material. And like we said, people largely forgot about it. Nothing new has come out in the news about this Eater robot. Although if you go to Robotic Technologies' website, they include the Eater as one of their three major projects currently sponsored by DARPA. So who knows? Daniel, have you ever played that PS4 game, um, Horizon Zero Dawn? No, David, I don't have a PS4. Well, uh, so this game basically, it takes place in a post-apocalyptic future where mankind has been reduced to almost uh, like a Neolithic level of technology. But the, the animals that live in this world, for the most part, are not the animals that we know, these organic beings, but giant robots, mechs that consume organic matter and live around the world. Things like giant robot saber-toothed tigers, giant dinosaurs. And it, it sounds crazy and like a weird setting, but it's a fun game. And if you haven't played it yet and you don't want spoilers, skip ahead here to 404. But basically, that game revolves around the idea that in the past, The militaries of the world built robots that consume organic matter to fuel themselves in order to wage war endlessly. And then we lose control of these autonomous robots, and they end up fighting humanity, of consuming almost all the organic life on Earth until some sort of fix is introduced and the world is launched into this sort of balance between the mechs and the humans, and I don't want to totally spoil everything. But when I played this game and then I read about this Eater robot, I was like, oh my God, we're quite literally creating exactly these robots that this science fiction game 
used as an example of a way to destroy the world. And here we are doing it for real. Sounds like a perfect recipe for disaster. Let's design a robot that can operate autonomously, search out its own fuel, and then let's give it military weapons capabilities. And then that fuel, which it can use to power itself, let's just make that fuel anything organic, basically the entire world. Yeah, well, it's a recipe for disaster if anything were to go out of control. And that's really the topic of what we're talking about today. These are autonomous weapons, AI technology used for combat, and many, many ways that we might find ourselves facing an apocalypse that we've only thought so far could be the realms of science fiction. But as we've known in this show repeatedly as we examine these topics, science fiction is increasingly becoming our reality, and unfortunately these science fictions often are dystopic in nature. And this eater robot, as fun as it is to think about, we have much larger things to worry about than just one little eater robot. It's not a little robot. It's a giant, almost car-sized robot with chainsaws mounted on the front of it. But with that scary image in mind, there are much worse things that we'll be facing very shortly. So let's jump in. Right now, there is an arms race that is taking place among the nations of the world to develop and acquire military weapons of the so-called Third Revolution in Warfare. The first revolution, of course, being gunpowder, the second being nuclear weapons, and the third being autonomous weapons. And before researching this topic, David, if you had asked me to picture an autonomous weapon, I would have had to use a little bit of creativity to try and imagine what a futuristic robot might look like. You would have probably thought of something like you've seen in all of our science fiction. So a Terminator-like character or these RoboCop uh, humanoid robots patrolling around or in giant like mech suits running across the earth. And, you know, you wouldn't be that wrong. That is an autonomous weapon. But the fact of the matter is that autonomous reality, that science fiction, is something that is a little bit farther off. But we've had autonomous weapons, or at least semi-autonomous weapons at this point, for decades now. That's right. And the more you look into it, you realize that autonomous weapon systems are everywhere and all around us and pretty integrated into the militaries of the world. We've had missile defense systems on Navy destroyers for a long time now. Heat-seeking missiles are pretty common, and something that's becoming increasingly common in terms of military equipment are cybersecurity systems. So things you wouldn't traditionally think of as being a weapon, but existing within a computer server somewhere that may monitor and adjust certain infrastructures. Mm -hmm. Even things, uh, cruise missiles, they can autonomously tell exactly, recognize a piece of terrain and, and guide itself to that. Um, Israel has their very famous Iron Dome system that automatically detects incoming rockets or missiles, automatically targets them, fires them without any human intervention. And these things have been in practice. They have been working at this point for many years, um, sometimes more successfully than others. But the age of autonomous weaponry exists now. But what is changing with it is the level of these AI technologies and how powerful the autonomous capabilities of these technologies are becoming. Yeah. And everyone by now is familiar with drones. And no surprise, militaries are developing drones for warfare. And along with that comes autonomous capabilities. The U.S. Department of Defense has a project for designing drone swarms that can hunt in packs like wolves, according to the department. And the Air Force has deployed successfully micro drone swarms from fighter jets while in flight. So, Autonomous systems have existed within the military for a long time, and one of the arguments for increasing automation comes from the potential for them to decrease risk or increase safety and eliminate the possibility of civilian casualties or collateral damage. 
But I was surprised to learn that perhaps the very first accidental death that came about from an autonomous system actually occurred in 1988. A U.S. Navy jet fired an anti-ship guided harpoon missile as part of a test in Pacific waters. The missile was supposed to target a dummy boat, but decided to lock on to a nearby Indian merchant vessel instead. One crewman was killed when this unarmed thousand-pound projectile slammed into the ship. But we have come a long way since 1988, and a long way since simple heat-seeking missiles. We are on the precipice of a true paradigm shift in modern warfare. The changes that are taking place in weapons development do not represent incremental changes, but rather an upheaval of war itself. In the same way that two weeks ago we discussed how the technological advances in commercial automation presented an unprecedented future for labor around the world, the integration of deep learning and artificial intelligence with military equipment means that we are facing a future of war that is radically different from anything humanity has ever seen before. In April of 2017, the U.S. Department of Defense established the Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, also known as Project MAVEN, to, quote, integrate artificial intelligence and machine learning across operations, end quote. Specifically, the goal of this project is to use the enormous data that is available to the Department of Defense as training sets for machine learning to replace human analysts and develop AI capabilities within every weapon system possible, with initial priority focusing on unmanned aerial drones. And although the military has funded artificial intelligence technologies in the past, this project represents a major shift in that it is the first time the focus has been on integrating machine learning with artificial intelligence products for combat operations. Yeah, in fact, the lieutenant general that headed this project Well, he called it the spark that would be the catalyst for, quote, the flame front of artificial intelligence. And so although this project started with just a few team members, I think it was like six, the real innovation is found in the way that this project enables rapid and flexible commercial partnerships. And this is a big sort of change in the way that the military operates with the commercial world. There's been increasing amount of the commercialization of war over the past few decades. Uh, The military industrial complex has grown increasingly associated uh, with the economy at large, and this is just another part of that. But it plays into the development of the economy as a whole, of the growth of Silicon Valley, of technology companies as a major part of our economy. And normally, the military acquires their technology very slowly. Though it's advanced through organizations like DARPA, it's a slow process. Uh, There's not a ton of funding that happens constantly, but through Project Maven, The military team was able to partner with technology companies, companies like Google, and help build training data for their machine learning algorithms from all the available drone videos the military has. And then just six months later, they were using these artificial intelligence algorithms in drone operations against real enemies. The rapidity at which this project got off the ground will undoubtedly be used as a model for countless new military projects and teams seeking to integrate AI into combat operations today. And that, of course, requires partners from the tech community. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Department of Defense spent $7.4 billion on artificial intelligence-related technologies in 2017 alone. $7 billion is a big number. And many Silicon Valley tech companies are eager to get a piece of this growing demand for military tech integrated with machine learning. Like you mentioned, Google. Other companies like Amazon and Microsoft Azure are trying to get into this business. 
In fact, Google was one of the companies that competed for a contract with Project Maven. The initial $9 million contract was expected to grow to $250 million per year. And executives within Google expressed their concerns that the public would find out about their involvement. The head scientist at Google Cloud said in an email, quote, I don't know what would happen if the media starts picking up a theme that Google is secretly building AI weapons or AI technologies to enable weapons for the defense ministry, end quote. But the contract was discovered and a huge backlash ensued. Academics and artificial intelligence fields signed an open objection letter to the company. 13 Google employees resigned. 700 employees joined an internal group called the Maven Conscientious Objectors. And 4,600 employees signed an internal petition demanding that the company cancel its contract, stating that it harms the public's trust in the company and that we should not allow Google to join the ranks of companies like Palantir. Raytheon, and General Dynamics. But it doesn't end just there. In May of this year, close to 1,000 scholars, academics, and other information technology experts signed an open letter to Google asking the company to halt its work with Project Maven and to avoid any work that involves artificial intelligence for military use or the sharing of personal data for military operations. And so in June of this year, Google decided not to renew this Maven contract. But is this enough to stop the momentum driving forward in developing these weapons? Can we stop tech companies from accepting lucrative contracts for the military to develop autonomous war machines? Well, David, uh, there's a lot of money at stake, so I'm a little skeptical. Well, I, I think part of it, and we'll explore this more as we go through this episode, but it's not just the fact that developing technology specifically for military uses, what people are out against here. But a lot of these technologies that Google are developing, um, a lot of technologies that are in this whole deep learning, machine learning field, well, because of the flexibility of the technology, as they push this forward, as they advance in our understanding of it, it carries very well over to these military uses. So even though you might be trying to design something for organizing just regular data, search data, or, or helping people book uh, restaurant reservations like we explored a couple weeks ago, many of these technologies can be applied to war. So even though you're not explicitly designing things for the military, for these operations, these defensive uh, operations, as they're most often called, though let's be honest, uh, especially in the United States, it's often offensive, it ends up being used for these purposes anyway. And, and we're starting to get into the ethics of this debate and that that's something that we'll discuss in more detail later on in the show, but something to start thinking about right now. Well, it's interesting you bring up how commercial developments of artificial intelligence technologies can be applied to military operations, because that's one of the responses you get from military experts and executives within the business of selling military technology. When it comes to banning the development of autonomous weapons, they say, look, the technology is neutral. It's going to be developed no matter what. And trying to prohibit the development of military weapons that have artificial intelligence is really only going to harm technological progress in general. And that's not something we want. It would harm all of society to try and prevent a general progress in technology. So that's something we can talk about soon. But why don't we look at some of the recent efforts that have taken place to prevent this development of what is being called lethal autonomous weapon systems. And this goes beyond just Google and its specific involvement with Project Maven. So on July 28th, 2015, the Future of Life Institute presented an open letter 
at the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence, which called for a blanket ban on offensive autonomous weapons beyond meaningful human control as a way to prevent this military artificial intelligence arms race. To date, this letter is signed by over 4,000 AI and robotics researchers and over 22,000 other endorsers, including Stephen Hawking, before he passed, Steve Wozniak, Elon Musk, Noam Chomsky, and many others. Their concerns about the development of autonomous weaponry include cybersecurity, since anything integrated with information technology can be hacked, the escalation of an arms race between countries and a lower risk of going to war in general, the ability or lack thereof of autonomous weapons to distinguish innocent people from combatants, the rise of destruction and death from unpredictable automated conflicts, sort of like you'd see in stock market flash crashes, and the removal of accountability and moral judgment in decisions that result in the loss of human life. So David, that's kind of complicated, but what generally people seem to be concerned about is the development of killer robots that can make the decision to end human life without a human being involved in that decision. These are weapon systems, these are robots, these are computers that are informed by algorithms and some kind of direction, but then act on their own. And we're okay with this type of autonomous decision-making when it comes to things like trading our stocks or flipping our burgers. If we buy one of those burger flipping machines or other autonomous decision-making that goes on in manufacturing. But when these actions that are being decided by computers have to do with ending human life, that's where things get a little bit tricky. And, and this is where the resistance is. It's not on autonomous uh, software in general. It's specifically on weapons that kill human beings without meaningful human control. So in terms of some of these practical examples of what this might be, again, the very sci-fi media-based picture of all this is a Terminator robot going around executing people, um, breaking into homes and murdering people on street blocks. But these are, in reality, um, in the way that they're deployed right now, are drones, uh, unmanned drones that are, are flying miles high above the ground, targeting people who look like tiny little infrared symbols from miles away and firing a missile and killing them without any sort of human intervention. Or that missile itself that's fired also has these same detection technologies on it, making sure it targets what it thinks is its initial target or whether it thinks is the correct house or vehicle or whatever it is. These are pieces of software that launch automatic defensive responses, so they think they're being attacked, so it responds uh, with similar cyber attacks or with missiles or nuclear weapons even if we want to take it that far. And we even have technology today that gets us closer to that image of a Terminator killer robot. Russia has a fully autonomous tank, the Uran 9, which can support a wide range of weapons from anti-tank guided missiles and machine guns to flamethrowers. And it can drive around, navigate, and pick its targets autonomously. There are flying drones of a large variety of sizes. So some of those large airplane-sized drones firing missiles that I discussed just a moment before, but also small drones like we are more familiar that maybe have a camera or you buy at the, the toy store. But these are equipped with tear gas grenades, with uh, detection weapons. Um, some countries are testing out with AK-47s and rocket launchers mounted on these otherwise small drones and using the camera vision technologies of these drones in order to target specific individuals or groups of people at the same time. And right now, we haven't really seen 
a broad deployment of these types of technologies that are actively choosing and attacking targets without humans behind the wheel at some point. Um, And that's usually the argument that is made by militaries like the U.S. that say, okay, even though our drones are capable of selecting objects and tracking objects and potentially firing upon targets by themselves, we always have a human behind the joystick that is making that final decision to fire the weapon. Well, at this point, it's sort of funny. Combat for the the drone operators is no longer somebody sitting there in the moment feeling at risk, uh, like their life is on the line in combat, in place. Instead, they're uh, sitting there behind a computer screen in an air-conditioned trailer somewhere, oftentimes in the United States, if this is the country that's operating the drone, um, even though that they're, the weapon that they might be flying is on the other side of the world. And when it comes to actually firing that missile or firing the gun, it's uh, hitting a prompt that says, basically, would you like to kill this person, yes or no? And uh, we now think about taking human life the same way that we accept terms and conditions when registering for a new website. Um, and that, that's the human component of this equation at this point. And that's the technology that Google was developing with this Project Maven. They were taking hundreds of thousands of images from drone videos. And then large pools of human labor were getting together to classify objects within those videos. And that data could then be used as training data to help machines learn how to spot these objects on their own. And then that technology can aid the drone operator in determining targets and such. So why don't we real quick just look at some of the arguments against the idea that we should ban these these types of weapon systems. I love a lot of these anti-ban arguments because they're things that have been trotted out time and time again. And sometimes even used at the opposite side of the same people making these arguments about technology. So they might say that, oh, it's we shouldn't ban uh, autonomous technology because of these reasons. But these very same reasons are why we should ban other states from obtaining nuclear weapons because, oh, no, we can't let them fall into their hands. So one of the, so one of the first things that always comes up is these bans are useless because anyone will be able to develop them anyway. The knowledge of how to make these weapons, these tools, is out there. It exists. All these little bits and pieces are online. You can find them and you can assemble it yourself. You just need a little bit of time, investment, and testing, and then there you go. You have autonomous weapons. So trying to ban them is pointless. The knowledge already exists in the world. Of course, this is identical with nuclear weapons and and how to build them. You can go find the plans for the original nukes in the Library of Congress, but when it comes to autonomous weaponry, maybe because it's less capital investment um, and the fact that it's not just nation states that would be able to put these things, but companies or maybe in the future, even individual people, for whatever reason, the people pushing these autonomous weapons say, well, it doesn't matter. Cats out of the bag. Why, why ban it? You can't at this point. Right, David. The point that is being made is that while anyone can learn, if you're smart enough, I guess, how to build a nuclear weapon obtaining the resources and actually manufacturing that is so incredibly difficult. The knowledge doesn't really matter. It's the resources. But when it comes to autonomous weapons, well, anyone can go out and buy a $300 drone, tape a machine gun to it, and then the software behind it that really powers these systems, um, the neural networks for facial recognition, a lot of these neural networks are open source software and can be obtained relatively easily. Okay, so everyone is agreeing then that we shouldn't ban these weapons because, well, they're easy to obtain for anybody. But then the second argument is that we shouldn't ban these weapons because it's going to be hard for terrorists to get their hands on these military-grade weapons. And that 
non-state actors in war zones might be able to. So like if I'm uh, ISIS or something in Syria, I might be able to get a drone to use for reconnaissance or something. But if you're in a city in the West, this is not going to happen. Terrorists won't be able to get this technology, which seems like it very much disagrees with what they just said about anybody being able to get this technology. So why ban it? But that aside, this also ignores that the fact that state actors might or are already using this technology to actively oppress people, including their own citizens, that victims of these, quote, non-state actors in war zones, what do we not care about the people that ISIS or other extremist groups are using these technology to hurt? But you know, David, I think the real argument around autonomous weapons has to do with the ethics of killing. And do we want to put those decisions in the hands of a cold-blooded machine? And the response to that is that the rules of engagement make it very easy for robots to identify targets. If a human is shooting at you, rules of engagement make it very clear that you can shoot back. A robot can sit there, though, and take the punishment of gunfire. And then it can use its multiple sensors to determine who is shooting at it and then eliminate them without any risk of harming the wrong person. And this seems pretty logical, right? If you shoot at me, David, I can shoot you back. And a robot soldier in my place would be able to do the same thing, except now I'm not at risk of dying. So this technology has the potential to save lives on the side that is employing them. It's a win-win situation, or so the story goes. We kill the bad guy and eliminate the risk of our soldiers dying. But this raises a very important moral question, and one that you actually raised briefly, David, in episode number 22, Fashion Victims which is that the destruction of human life as punishment for damaging inanimate objects and property is troubling in a way. So setting aside for a moment the moral contradictions and injustices within certain warfare itself, a human is justified in defending themselves with lethal force specifically because human life is at risk. But once you replace one of these humans with a robot, well, there is no risk of human life until the robot engages lethal force. The rules of the game have completely changed. But this is something we can come back to and expand on later on in this episode. Those are great questions, Daniel, and I can't wait to explore them in more depth later on. Uh, But it also sort of makes me think of some of the tricky languages that these companies, these people involved behind developing these technologies employ. The same questions that we bring up about, well, you know, is, is war justified when it's a robot killing a human? is uh, the same sort of ethical questions, uh, philosophical play that is being put into use by these tech companies to justify their work on these, what they call, defensive projects. So the response that companies like Google and the DoD make to concerns about artificial intelligence being integrated with weapon systems is, we're not developing any offensive capabilities. The Google contract for Project Maven, for example, was mostly for developing object recognition capabilities. So a drone can recognize a car from a person and track where these things go. And and the way it's presented by the military and these tech companies partnering with the military is that these technologies are just aids for human pilots. So they don't have to spend as much time trying to identify targets and spend more time thinking about whether it's right to ultimately pull that trigger. But that argument, David, of course, ignores the fact that you can't draw a clear line between technology for firing a missile and its accessory capabilities. So what I mean is you can't draw a line between the act of autonomously firing a missile at a target and the capability to recognize and track objects. You can't have one without the other. 
And that's what the Google contract for Project Maven was for. It was for developing object recognition capabilities so that a drone can recognize a car from a person and track where these things go. But once an unmanned aerial vehicle has the capability to fly itself, map the world in real time, and track different classes of objects, the fact that a human being pulls the trigger is not a matter of necessity, but mere protocol. And that protocol can be changed in a heartbeat. And beyond all that, the fact that we've talked in the past about predictive policing and how the technology is presented as a mere objective tool used by human officers to predict where crime may occur. But in reality, this technology only exacerbates discriminatory policing while allowing humans to offload their ethics and ultimate responsibility in the name of objective algorithms. And there's no reason to think military applications of AI would be any different. An AI-driven visual overlay that is seen by a drone pilot is marketed as a way to reduce the risks associated with human judgment. But more realistically, it could be used as a way to direct human judgment towards certain outcomes. Outcomes that might go against what's best for the drone pilot and certainly those on the ground. David, it's time. Do you know what it's time for? Uh, you'd ask me some inane questions, I, I'm sure. No, it's time for Robot Dystopian Future, number one. So David, let's say you're my right-hand military man, and I tell you that we have intelligence on a white van, likely to be transporting explosives from one town to another, and it's going to be using such and such road. I give you a rocket launcher, and I need you to locate the target and stop it at all costs. Oh, and of course, you better not kill any civilian. Well, with those orders, you might go out with your team and post checkpoints along the road at different places. You might tell your team to stop every white van along the road for a search. And in general, you're going to be aggressive in locating the target. But you also might err on the side of caution when it comes to using lethal force for fear of injuring or killing the wrong people and potentially losing your job in the process. So in other words, you're going to be using a lot of human judgment. But now let's say, David, instead I give you the same instructions, but I augment your equipment with a pair of holographic overlay glasses. I'm sure you're excited at this point, David. And we connect these glasses to AI-supported visual satellites or drones or something in the air that's tracking this geographic region. Well, fast forward to the mission. You're standing on the street corner scanning for likely targets. All of a sudden, your glasses come alive with this visual overlay that says, White van approaching from the northeast. Seen leaving suspicious region known for terrorist activity. Traveling 40% over the speed limit. Occupants were seen loading van with containers of unknown contents. 68% probability of target match. End quote. Well, David, now you have to make a decision. Normally, you'd stop the van for a search because it's white and could be a likely target, but you recognize that every time you do that, there is a risk that one of your team members might get killed by a preemptive attack. The intelligence in your glasses seems solid, and although you usually err on the side of caution when it comes to eliminating a target, well, if this turns out to be the right target and you messed up somehow, got one of your team members killed or let the target slip through, well, you don't have a good excuse because your computer told you everything you needed to know. How could you mess this up when there's a 68% probability of a target match? So what do you do? Well, uh, I mean, if it was a black van, we would have just shot it right away. 
But because it's a white van, I want to be more cautious and try and take it uh, peacefully if I can. But um, 68%, time to blow it up, I think. All right, David, so you blow it up. Fine. Well, unfortunately for the occupants of that van, a harmless family that was rushing to get to a wedding they were late for, you hit the wrong target. But fortunately for you, no one is going to blame you because you relied on data that seemed positive from an objective artificial intelligence. Who could blame you for following up on that? Okay, maybe that was a cheesy example, but it kind of highlights one of the main concerns with augmenting human soldiers with artificial intelligence and autonomous weapons. It removes accountability and the moral caution that is unique to human judgment. Well, yeah. Uh, In this case, technology was just a tool, right? It was a tool used by the soldier to make a decision. And this technology is just a tool argument is something that is so popular in this discussion. And it's really no different than guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? Well, this is the autonomous weapon version of that same classic argument. And ultimately, autonomous weapons get their power from this software. And as we saw with Google and its partnership with Project Maven, it takes a ton of resources and energy and time and people to train machines to recognize objects, faces, track targets, and carry out the autonomous missions we want them to. As revealed in the Project Maven case, just to get the project off the ground, and in order to train the machine behind this drone technology to recognize a car or a truck or an individual, human beings had to sit down and analyze hundreds of thousands of video images, manually identifying objects which machines could then use as training data. The kind of work needed to enable autonomous technology is labor-intensive and does not come about without intent and purpose. When we think about technology, advancement, and progress, we are led to believe that advancement follows a logical, incremental path. This is reinforced in the way that history itself is told. It's reinforced through justifications for the development of certain technology, and it's reinforced through media and entertainment. If anyone has ever played one of the Sid Meier's Civilization games, in which the goal is to build and advance a civilization, you know how the technology tree is presented as a logical framework. Of course you go from the Stone Age to the Iron Age. Of course you develop roads and then the steam engine. And of course, ultimately you develop nuclear power and satellites. Yeah, David, that's really the idea when we think about technological progress is that there's only one direction it can go. That's progress. I mean, progress only goes in one direction. But this framework is a man-made construct. It's not a natural constant of the universe. Technology is not merely the invention of computer chips and circuit boards, but includes systems for organizations like the British Postal Service, which at the time was considered a world wonder, without which perhaps the modern global economy would not have come into being. There are a million different directions that humans can go in the development of technology, and those directions have less to do with natural laws than they do human intent and purpose. So consider facial recognition technology. You could be the most technologically advanced civilization in the universe and still lack any method for tracking faces because the ability to do so does not emerge naturally from some general level of advancement. It emerges from an intentional effort to create it. There is no true benefit to society related to the development of facial recognition beyond surveillance and control. So if surveilling and controlling people were not an active human objective, the technology would never emerge on its own. 
Yeah, I think that point about facial surveillance is really important because a lot of the times we talk about this technology like it's so neutral, like, oh, yeah, you know, like anybody can build a missile, but it's whether you use the missile or not that makes it evil. Right. Uh, like that's some sort of justification for being able to build missiles. But uh, facial recognition is something that we see a lot more time and energy invested in and see it everywhere. Facebook has it. You can buy home cameras from Google, from Nest that that have facial recognition built in. There's even doorbells now that have facial recognition built into doorbells that tell you, you know, who's ringing your door. How convenient. Uh, this technology is everywhere and it's sold to us as convenience. You upload a photo to Facebook, it automatically tags your friends, I guess. You know what, David? I'm going to have to take back my comment that there's no benefit to society related to the development of facial recognition. Because you just don't understand how much work went into tagging my friends on Facebook. This is a huge time saver for me. Something that... Yeah, from all those like huge group photo shoots you do with your friends constantly. Someone's a little jealous, I think, but... <laughs> Uh, no, but really, like the the justifications that I've had conversations with people about in facial recognition, where they're reaching, searching for some sort of social good that comes from the technology that's used almost universally to surveil and control people, to control us in borders, to control us uh, in our cities, uh, as we're seeing right now in China and Xinjiang province, all around the world. This technology is being deployed to arrest people, to make people's lives worse, under the guise of safety under the guise of societal control, which is, uh, you know, not even trying to hide what they're trying to do with it. But what is the good? Uh, maybe you could take a picture of, of somebody who's injured and they, they don't know who they are, and, and then you can maybe identify them. Like, the cases of that actually doing anything uh, are so infinitesimally small, it's ridiculous. And meanwhile, as this technology becomes more ubiquitous and finds its way into everyone's hands, uh, there was an example in Russia recently where there's a service, an app, that you took a picture of a woman on a train or a bus, or on the street that you thought was hot. And it would link their VK account, which is like the Russian version of Facebook, so that you could get the information on that person and then stalk them, assault them, whatever it is you wanted to do, harass them online, just because you saw them on the street. And normally you would go up and ask them for their name, their phone number, and if they didn't want to give it to you, then you had that privacy. They, they could walk away and you had nothing that you were able to do. But now, thanks to facial recognition, you can find out who this person is and bother them wherever they are, and they can't escape it. This is what this technology is doing. This is not good technology. There is nothing to redeem facial recognition or the work that's gone into developing this technology. It's a huge drag on society, and, and a lot of these technologies that find their way into these autonomous weapons, and the development, the engineers, the companies that are doing the actual development of these autonomous weapons, you're actively hurting all of humanity with your work. And you can try and justify it by saving soldiers' lives or something, but you're only fooling yourselves. Well, you're right, David, that this facial recognition technology, the software behind object recognition, these technologies ultimately get integrated with autonomous weapons. And you brought up Russia, and this is a country that is a good example of someone who's justifying the development of lethal autonomous weapon systems with the argument that artificial intelligence research is good, it's inevitable, and a restriction on weapons might harm research in general. Russia is leading the charge on the development of autonomous unmanned ground vehicles, or tanks, and it has been designing drone swarms of up to 100 individual drones that can operate as an AI-controlled unit. And in September of last year, Russian President Putin stated that whoever led the world in AI development will rule the world. 
And two months later, the Russian Federation released a letter stating that it would not honor any ban or restrictions recommended by the upcoming United Nations Convention on Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems. The Russian position was basically, look, it's too difficult to define what a lethal autonomous weapon system is, and any ban or restriction might harm research in general. Meanwhile, Russian companies are producing and marketing autonomous weapons like machine guns that can select and fire upon targets without human guidance. All right, David, let's do another robot dystopian scenario. Number two. In 2010, a trillion dollars vanished from the U.S. stock market before mostly recovering, all in a span of 36 minutes. Analysts believe that a single man set off a chain reaction when he placed a large, bogus spoofing order intended to confuse stock prices. Algorithms that were trained to sell under certain conditions went into a flurry of activity faster than humans could intervene. A similar event happened in February of this month, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average collapsed 1,600 points in about 15 minutes. Former vice chairman of Nasdaq said, quote, We've created a stock market that moves too darn fast for human beings, end quote. Now, when high-frequency trading computers set off chain reactions in financial markets, people lose money that they might not ever be able to get back. But life goes on. But in a situation where high-frequency autonomous weapons set off chain reactions, life itself might not go on. That's where this gets really scary. As we saw in episode 13, Lights Out, the military considers cyber attacks on our infrastructure systems as potential acts of war. Which means that in a world where we rely increasingly on autonomous weapon systems, robots won't just be monitoring incoming missiles. They'll also be monitoring information-related attacks to justify physical retaliation. And so in the same way that we experience flash stock market crashes, we may be setting ourselves up for flash warfare. A computer somewhere erroneously detects hackers trying to disable a small national power grid and retaliates by launching mortar fire into a neighboring country. Some of the fire lands in proximity of a refugee camp, causing people to flee in a panic. One of Meteor Aerospace's autonomous rovers, Rambo, mistakes the behavior of the refugees as a military operation to cross the border. And while firing into the crowd with its mounted machine gun, it directs a nearby military base to activate a radar installation. But that prompts a loitering harpy missile programmed to destroy enemy radar when it comes online to descend and blow it up. A nearby autonomous submarine joins the fray. And in the background of all this, you have cybersecurity systems trying to attack and shut down enemy logistics, infrastructure, and sparking more retaliation. Within minutes, you've got 10 countries practically at full-blown war with each other. And the humans are still asleep. Luckily, though... As we saw with automation, David, now that we have autonomous journalists, it will all be written about in the news when we wake up. But no conversation about war can ever be complete without the constant reminder that war is a business. And these technologies, these autonomous lethal weapons, well, they themselves are a business. The Israeli Defense Ministry received a complaint against Israeli weapons company Aeronautics Defense Systems that alleges the company was asked by a potential client to give a live demonstration of its Orbiter 1000 suicide drone on an Armenian army position. 
before I even continue, I just want to stop and point out the fact that people are, in fact, building and selling suicide drones. Okay. According to the complaint, employee drone operators refused to launch the weapon, and company executives armed and launched it themselves. There's no disputing that the attack actually happened, but the company claims their client, the Azerbaijan government, executed the attack after purchasing the drone. The Israeli Defense Ministry has taken the complaint seriously enough that it has suspended all exports of this company's products to Azerbaijan and paused the contract worth $20 million to the company. This raises so many questions, David, about the business of war itself. I mean, this company in particular markets its products to customers in about 50 different countries. But a question that is most relevant to this show is, in this complaint, it is alleged that employees of the company refused to launch the drone. But in an autonomous world, would the risk that a soldier, or in this case, a company employee, disobey an order go away? Well, I think, you know, you bring this up as like some sort of future concept. Well, in the future, when robots can do this themselves, will the fact that an employee refuses to do it or a soldier refuses to do an action uh, disappear and no longer be a thing? But I mean, in this very specific scenario that actually happened here with our current level of autonomy, the soldier, in this case, the drone operator who's an employee of the company, but we're going to call them a soldier because they were, you know, launching drones designed to kill people via suicide attack. They refuse to fire. This is the same as a commander coming up to somebody and say, shoot this, this woman, shoot this combatant that's surrendering, whatever it is. And the soldier saying, no, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. And then the commander shoots him himself. Well, in this case, uh, the commander is a CEO of a tech company who trying to show off his product. Maybe he's not a qualified drone operator or he doesn't know how to arm bombs or whatever it is that this, this drone does. But it doesn't matter because all he has to do is press a button. And the autonomy of this weapon, the ability to go through and complete these orders without question, just because it was told to, is what enabled this CEO to use a suicide bomb as an advertising pitch. This isn't the future. This is the current state of lethal autonomous weapons. I don't know if the Cannes Advertising Festival is going to have a uh, award for, uh, for lethal drone demonstrations um, advertising, but uh, maybe they should consider adding it to the docket this year. It'll win first place, David. But you know what? This discussion about war and business, it reminds me of what we talked about last week with debt and currency. We discussed how currency has become so vitally linked to war. Before currency, it was difficult economically to support a large standing army. They were smaller. They were more spread out. Their justifications for going to war in the first place were more likely to stem from local conditions, human needs human judgment, and in general, they were more decentralized. But currency allowed rulers to expand their central power by imposing a currency tax on the people, a currency that could only be obtained by supplying the market demands of military personnel. And this unified the armies and the people under the same roof, not by appealing to their sense of duty or patriotism, but through economic incentives. And in a way, this paradigm shift removed some of the moral or purely human elements in armies and replaced those elements with a cold and calculating machine. Well, in the same way, autonomous military technology threatens to centralize military power even further. Right now, a tyrant dictator may still experience challenges when it comes to controlling a military force. I mean, after all, many violent coup d'etats occur when military executives disagree with the political leadership. 
And because militaries are comprised of citizens, asking those individuals to turn on their own people is not an easy thing to accomplish. But once that same dictator has access to a dispersed robotic force that can be controlled from a central, well-protected hub and executed like you pointed out, David, with the touch of a button, well, those challenges all but disappear. Daniel? Yes, David? It's time for me to deploy robot dystopic future number three. Daniel? Yes? I'm wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. So how come you wouldn't give me that loan at the beginning of last week's episode? Because I don't like you, Daniel. (laughs) But I am fabulously wealthy. I have billions of dollars. Oh, I see. This is a scenario. I have tens of billions of dollars. Okay. In fact, you know what? I'm the richest man on earth. I'm Jeff Bezos. You know, it's tough being lord of Amazon. There's a lot of work. People are angry underneath me. But, you know, all the money, I guess it makes it okay. It's, It's worth it. I've been developing autonomous technology. I've got drones that I'm working on that'll deliver things. But, you know, just selling people stuff from online, I I think I'm getting tired of that business. And I think I want to get into the warlord industry. I think you could help me out. You think I could help you out? Yeah, you know, you are Daniel of Daniel's Autonomous Lethal Weapon Industries. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. All your finest robots right here. But according to certain international... Treaties. I'm actually not allowed to sell some of these weapons to just anybody. Well, uh, Mr. Mr. Jeff, sir, uh, it has to be a government. <clears throat> well, yeah, we could set up the the state of uh, Seattle, Amazon, Atonia, and uh, I have twenty billion dollars here. Why you should change your mind? And I would love to purchase an autonomous drone army. Oh, well, twenty billion dollars, you say? That yeah, yeah. Is there something you could hook me up with? Well, if you had started with that, I would have told you right from the very beginning we are in business. And just like that. Jeff Bezos becomes a warlord with an army at control. And this is the first time in history that we are entering that anybody, with enough money anyway, could purchase an army. An army that is never going to say no, is going to always be there, isn't going to need to be fed, will need to be repaired and refueled, but with eater technology, with robots that repair themselves, that will all be taken care of too. And for the first time in history, military might is disconnected from manpower. From manpower? Yes, from manpower. Throughout history, the ability to raise a military, an army, was dependent upon a population, a large population, one that could both feel the number of people you need as troops, as soldiers, as well as people supporting those soldiers, and then people growing food or making supplies to keep those soldiers fed and fighting fit. That's a huge effort in order to have any sort of military that has any sort of actual power. But as you eliminate the human component of this, You're replacing the actual physical human cost of war with just an economic one. And of course, it can't entirely disconnect economics from human labor hours, at least not yet, though the automation episode that we've addressed is showing that that is increasingly happening. But now, money buys militaries, large militaries, and not just mercenary forces. And so not too dissimilar from the Star Wars prequels, where groups with enough money the Trade Federation could buy large autonomous militaries, or groups with enough money and a strong enough ideology like the Jedi could buy a clone army, well, now Jeff Bezos or anyone else who has enough could in theory field a military based purely on their bank account. David, at first I was a little skeptical when you were talking about a tech billionaire owning an army because it seems like All the governments of the world would not stand for that. But you're right in the fact that the ability to command a violent force is shifting away from 
what we traditionally think of as the owners of armies, which is states. And this power is transferring to non-state actors. So maybe at first we're going to see this in the in the hands of small-scale, more regional-based tyrant dictators. But as money becomes more and more integrated with the ability to control militaries, I think you're right that we're going to see a dramatic shift in who is ultimately deploying these weapons in the first place. And perhaps it would never be so overt, such as Jeff Bezos just purchasing an army outright. But but perhaps someone like him or a company like United Fruit Company, which we've discussed in the past, used American military might in order to forward their economic prospects. Well, now with these lethal autonomous weapons, they could do the exact same thing but with an army paid for by stockholders and employed by the company itself. In trying to protect their resources and other business interests could somehow redirect funds to other paramilitary groups that could deploy these technologies as proxies for the man himself, right? And that's a scary future, David. It certainly is. It's scary until I get control of my military, my lethal autonomous military. You know what, David? Then you'll all know fear. Wait, what? Well, speaking, David, of autonomous weapons that become increasingly within reach of non-state actors or quasi-state actors, We could look at police departments themselves around the United States to see how this technology is developing in the hands of groups all over the country. Yeah, absolutely. Just like you can't separate conversations of war from the increasing corporatization of war, you also can't separate the increasing militarization of the police from these same conversations about weapons. The technologies and tools that militaries around the world use, as well as the techniques and training, find their way into police forces all around the world and most notably here in the United States and in places like Israel. So in 2016, Dallas police cornered a man in a parking deck that had shot and killed five officers. The man refused to come out, so officers strapped C4 to a bomb defusal robot. They drove it in, and they blew him up with it. And it was the first time police had ever used a robot to intentionally kill someone. It wasn't autonomous in this example, and... Putting aside any ethical or moral questions about whether this was appropriate or not, given the situation, this event is significant for the fact that it was improvised. It had never been done before, and it raised a lot of questions that the current legal framework did not have answers for. And ultimately, I think what we can take away from that example is that police officers represent one area of society that has access to force that will find innovative ways to use whatever tools they have at their disposal. And to prevent the abuse of those tools, one way is to write legislation that attempts to limit what a police department can do with certain equipment, but another angle is to limit access to certain equipment in the first place. Equipment perhaps like weaponized drones. In 2015, North Dakota became the first state in the United States to allow police to fly weaponized drones equipped with pepper spray, tasers, and even beanbag guns which are little bags filled with lead shot fired from a shotgun that are allegedly not intended to kill. And ever since then, Connecticut has been trying to raise the bar by becoming the first state to allow police to fly drones equipped with deadly weapons. Last year in 2017, a bill to that effect passed the state's Judiciary Committee, but ultimately failed to pass the House. This was the fourth attempt at passing a similar legislation, so it will likely be back around for round five at some point. And in March of 2018, just a few months ago, Israeli forces used drones equipped with tear gas launchers 
to fly over protesters in Gaza and drop tear gas canisters from well above their heads down on the populations beneath them. These tear gas drones are being tested right now against actual live human protesters as a beta test for developing this technology to sell to police departments around the world. When, of course, tear gas is not completely a non-lethal weapon. In fact, in situations like this and in this event, specifically, David, people die as a result of mass tear gas, especially vulnerable are children and the elderly. And a couple weeks ago, in June of 2018, the company that makes police equipment like tasers and body cameras partnered with drone maker DJI to sell commercial drones to police departments directly around the United States. And the footage from these drones will be uploaded to Axon's servers for artificial intelligence to analyze and enable autonomous surveillance capabilities in real time. And researchers published a paper this month demonstrating how real-time drone surveillance can be used to automatically detect violent individuals in public areas. In this paper, they introduce a system that identifies each individual in a public sphere, tracks their movements, and identifies people that it believes are violent, based on their pose and the orientation of their limbs. So if a man walks up to another man and punches him, for example, the AI will notice that the first man has his arm extended toward the other's face, and he's in an aggressive pose while the second man's pose is falling backwards, and the AI will conclude on this information that the first man is violent. Of course, like many of these autonomous systems, there are serious limitations. The software's difficulty telling the difference between somebody punching someone or pushing them over, and from people dancing, or if I reached over to brush something off your shoulder, Daniel, or many of the common ways that we touch each other in day-to-day life. It starts to begin to assume that all contact and reactions between ourselves is something that is violent. Because the way that this was trained was, well, in these situations, if people are punching each other or touching each other, then there's probably a violent reason behind it. But a lot of human contact isn't violent, or it looks violent to those outside. And do we really need a device flying around calling the cops every time it thinks it sees conflict? Many fights are settled without any sort of police confrontation. They're friendly, or at least settled on a way that no police need to get involved, that nobody wants to press charges, that there's no reason to involve law enforcement if the system. And then, like our predicted policing, what are we going to see? Uh, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of these drones constantly flying around a city, constantly refueling itself in order to just watch us all the time on the off chance that somebody punches somebody and they can dispatch a police officer rushing away, getting there 10 to 15 minutes later, well after whatever sort of conflict it thought it saw is long done. What's the point? But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, David, of course, the first problem with technology like this that tries to model human behavior and then autonomously step in to act on that behavior is that, like you mentioned, it's not that great at distinguishing, say, a violent person from a person who's just interacting in a natural way, but their limbs happen to be extended towards another person. Maybe they're brushing something off their shoulder. And now all of a sudden the computer thinks, oh no, violent person, we need to intervene. But there's a much broader concern. And that's that machines will never be able to reasonably determine intent and whether an act is justified or not, because it will always lack the understanding and context of human behavior, which is something that we ourselves have trouble with sometimes. So let's see an example. The Igbo are a native people of Western Africa in what is now Nigeria. Before colonization by the British, their society was unique. Although men and women had different economic roles, 
Power was held in an egalitarian manner among men and women alike. Political power itself was diffuse, with no one institution or person having authority to issue commands. And force was a legitimate method that any individual or group could employ to protect their interests or decisions. Igbu women held tremendous power in this society through their solidarity, their various social roles, and they had a method for punishing men who committed crimes against society, and it was called sitting on a man. So if a man abused his wife, for instance, a group of women would convene at his house. They would yell at him and they would shame him. And if he did not repent, they would drag him out and they would beat him up. This is the process of sitting on a man. And this practice was an important function in Igbu society that kept the abuse of power in check and it provided victims with protection and solidarity. Well, when the British colonizers and the missionaries arrived on the scene, they brought with them Western systems of patriarchy and they were blind to the political power and functions of women in Igbu society. Women were often ignored and they were left out of the political institutions that were imposed. And these women experienced a loss of power across the board within their own society. And when they naturally resisted in solidarity by sitting on a man and directing their dissatisfaction at their colonizers, the British interpreted it as an uprising or women's revolution, and they responded by slaughtering the Igbu women. And this, of course, is an analogy for what will happen to all of us if we allow computers to decide when we are stepping out of line. In the same way that the British came into a culture they did not understand, observed behavior that was outside their predetermined views of acceptable human behavior, and responded to deviations of that behavior with lethal force, artificial intelligence-controlled drones with predetermined views of acceptable human behavior will do the same to us. And in the Igbu example, these women lost their place within their own society. Their behavior was conformed to outsider expectations, and their power was stripped from them. Will we allow these outsiders, these machines, these AI-controlled weapons to do the same to all of us? Well, you know what? I can qualify something about how well we are training these AI with our culture. And I mean, it is people training these AI. We have humans sitting down there, clicking on things, teaching it stuff. Uh, It's learning from us. So at the same time, it's learning our culture. But the nature of machine learning is that once we've taught it, once we've created that initial data set that goes in and then trains the neural nets, it's hard to update with new data. So as our culture develops faster than these machines can be retrained, which maybe is like a weird thing to think of because we perceive tech as advancing so fast, it's moving faster than any other part of our society, of our culture and pushes along society and culture. But in reality, culture advances blindingly fast. Fads come and go, trends come and disappear, and we are always thinking about new things, and especially with the internet. Ideas can come, explode into the public consciousness, and die within a matter of weeks. Trying to take these ideas and load them into some sort of training data that can then be fed to these machine algorithms that need to be constantly updated and kept up to date with what is and what is not currently acceptable is quite literally impossible. There's no way to do this at any sort of scale that actually makes sure that the technology and the ideas of these AI, these these machine learning groups, can keep pace with what we human beings collectively agree on as right, as wrong, as our culture. And so we might find ourselves very quickly running into the limits of our tech overlords. 
and find ourselves with the fate of the Igbo women. And of course, the other side of this is also that the data that we feed into these neural nets ends up averaging out. So as we feed in lots of different ideas and things, it all comes out and spits out this very vanilla gray version of our culture, of our ideas, of our beliefs, and becomes the average of all of us. But averages sometimes can be extremely misleading. And what you think will fit for everyone ends up fitting for no one. That's right, David. In order for machine learning to work, it has to take a large set of training data and figure out what is acceptable within this, the bounds of the data that it's given. And it leads to this kind of average understanding of what is acceptable in terms of behavior in this example. But like you said, averages when it's applied to human beings and the way we function doesn't really make much sense. And this is something that the U.S. military discovered when it was trying to design airplane cockpits for the first time. In the early 20th century, when airplanes for military use were new, engineers were trying to figure out what was the perfect size to design a cockpit. And in order to figure that out, they took measurements of every proportion imaginable that could be found on the male body. They compiled all this data and they took averages of every single proportion, the length of the thumb to the palm, the length of our arms, our general height, the length of our legs, the size of our head, and they took averages of all of these. And then based on these averages, they designed a cockpit, the goal of which was to conform to the average human being so that it would fit the largest number of candidates. And after they built these cockpits, what happened was pilots crashed so frequently, it was alarming. Over 10 pilots could die in a day just trying to fly these airplanes because they were so difficult to fly. Well, finally, a statistician from Harvard came in and, and tried to help analyze this data. And he realized that trying to take an average for a human being doesn't make sense because no one individual person is average. We all have deviations. We all have unique proportions. And the only way to fit a person to a cockpit is to do the reverse, fit the cockpit to the individual. And once they figured that out in the 1950s, they started redesigning cockpits. In fact, I was surprised to learn, David, that before this time, they didn't even have adjustable seats. They didn't, it wasn't common knowledge enough to think that an adjustable seat, adjustable joysticks, adjustable pedals made any sense. And in fact, this idea made its way to the commercial automobile. And that's why we have adjustable seats today, uh, thankfully. But once they implemented this idea and started conforming the cockpit, not to the average human, but to the individual within that cockpit, well, it suddenly became a lot easier to fly the airplane. Tests went down, pilot performance dramatically improved, and the key takeaway from this is that averages can be bad. So trying to apply a basic idea of culture to a large group of people trained off an average set of data will end up potentially making us all far worse off. And there just it isn't in the technology right now to be able to have a large discriminatory ability of these neural nets, of the training data that we feed in, of telling everything apart, of, of explaining culture on, on its wide, constantly changing way. And we need to be careful with this technology, with autonomous technology, especially when we give that technology the ability to take lives. In the British example, David, they needed women to conform to Western roles for economic reasons. But access to autonomous weapons opens up a more financially expedient way to conform whole cities, places, and societies to economic standards and systems. Step out of line, and the camera, the drone, the autonomously mounted machine gun on the corner of the street 
Well, they're going to let you know. What's that sound, Daniel? Sounds like another robot dystopian future. Number four. Okay. Oh, I'm ready for this one. This is the final robot dystopian future of this episode. And everything from here on in this episode is just really highlighting like the absurd finality of these autonomous weapon systems. So I'm some sort of non-state actor. I'm, a, I'm an organization. I'm an eco group. I'm an activist group. I'm a terrorist group. Uh, or, or maybe I'm another tech billionaire. This time, you know what? I'm Larry Page, CEO of Alphabet of, of Google. And you know what? I have had it with Apple users. I see their iPhones everywhere. It's a constant reminder that not everyone's using Android. I'm sick of their privacy stance. Like all the stuff Apple's doing is making it hard for Google to spy on their tech. And you know what? I'm done with this. Uh, This is outrageous. And I'm going to do something about this. The ultimate market move with my billions and billions of Google dollars. You know what I'm going to do? What are you going to do, Mr. Page? Well, you know, Google's been working a lot on all sorts of autonomous technology. So I've got a lot of tech developed. Uh, We've got facial recognition. We've got uh, conversations between other AIs. Uh, And so I'm going to take all this and I'm going to build a bunch of teeny tiny drones, hundreds of thousands of them, millions of them. And these teeny tiny little drones, well, they're all going to talk to each other. And they're all equipped with cameras. And these cameras, we train these with groups of humans identifying photos of people looking for people who have iPhones. I've got little sensors on these that detect people who have iPhones that recognize the, the unique signatures that iPhones give off. And these little drones can now tell what phone you have, whether it's in your pocket, whether it's out, whatever. So now I've got a swarm of drones, small drones. These are like hand-sized things. And these massive army of drones that recognize people. And now I'm going to attach a little explosive charge to them. Nothing big. You know, not much more than a bullet, but it's attached directly to the drone and the drone has a detonator that signals this and you've blown a little hole in something, whether that's a wall, a window or somebody's head. And it's time for the great Google rebellion. I'm sending out my army of drones to wipe out the iPhone and Apple users of the world. They're out. Tens of millions of drones are out there and attacking people all over the world. And in a matter of hours, I've wiped out a huge portion of people. The Google rebellion is over and only Android users stand. And I guess the random one or two guys that bought a Windows phone. They're okay, too. Sounds crazy, right? Yes, that sounds crazy. It does, but you know what? All this technology exists right now. Some AI researchers and autonomous developers have put together a video called Slaughterbot that we've linked on our website that you haven't seen it yet, you need to watch. And this creates a fictional world where terrorists, non-state actors, and eventually even states themselves have developed tiny drones, very much like the ones I just described, theoretically developed by Google, that can fly out into the world and target people based on all sorts of data using facial recognition, and then using the explosive charge on this drone, well, execute this person. It sounds crazy, but all this technology exists. And nobody has cobbled together all the pieces quite yet, but there's nothing stopping them. And there's nothing stopping states from doing this. And there's nothing stopping small organizations, terrorists, activist groups, or larger organized military groups like ISIS from putting together an attack very much like this. And because of the low cost of these drones and the low tech required to build them, relatively speaking, you can basically create a weapon of mass destruction, a scalable weapon of mass destruction, Four pennies on the dollar compared to any other sort of biological or nuclear agent. What's special about these weapons, especially if deployed by state actors, 
is I could theoretically take a plane, fly it over city, deploy all these micro drones, something that the U.S. Air Force has already tested successfully, dump hundreds of them, thousands of them, millions of them if the city's large enough, and they will fly down and target every single being living in the city. If you try and hide inside, some of these swarm drones, one will sacrifice itself to punch through a wall, come in, and then get you anyway. In a matter of hours, you could completely clear out the population of a city with no negative effects. There's no biological contamination. There's no disease left behind. There's no radiation. Even the mystical neutron bomb, which is supposed to be a nuclear weapon that shoots off specific types of radiation that kills people more than it destroys infrastructure, doesn't have the type of unique targeted attack that a distributed swarm drone slaughter bot attack could have. This is war where infrastructure is kept perfect, and all the populations that might rebel against you are gone in a matter of hours. This is what we really mean when we talk about the third age of war, of a revolution of how we fight wars, how we think about them. Because if I'm fighting an aggressive war, this is the perfect solution. I'm not risking lives. I'm not risking infrastructure. I drop this relatively cheap amount of drones over somewhere. They do their job, and a large portion of the population, if not all of them, are wiped off and my forces can move in with little to zero resistance and immediately occupy this city. I can start moving civilians and right away I can move troops in and everything works perfectly. If that doesn't terrify you at the future of war, and again, this technology already exists, well, I don't know what would. We hear a lot in general, David, that our soldiers risk their lives to save the lives of those of us back home. And I want to flesh out a point we made earlier in the show and highlight how autonomous warfare reveals the absurdity of war and the paradox of that assumption. Like we said, a human is justified in defending themselves with deadly force precisely because their own life is in jeopardy. But replacing the human with a robot changes the game completely because now there is no risk of losing life at all. That is, until that robot fires its weapons. Which means that if autonomous weapons have a place in our wars, then our wars are not about saving lives at all, and perhaps never were. And if war is not about saving lives, it must be about killing lives for material gain. Because that's exactly what a robot killing a human is. Destruction of life to protect inanimate material wealth. The paradox then is that if you replaced all frontline soldiers with robots, the robots no longer need weapons at all. Unless, of course, your objective is related to material wealth. And the most obvious objection to that would be that war is about protecting people. Even if one country is in a foreign place, maybe it's because they are trying to protect the native citizens from some foreign aggressor. But that's really a larger discussion about the nature of our wars in the first place that I think doesn't take a lot of examination to challenge. But all this becomes even clearer when we look at the logical conclusion of all these autonomous weapons which is robot versus robot warfare. At that point, which is something that military experts and think tanks assume will be an eventual reality, you have to ask what the point of war really is in the first place. If you're not even killing people, then it's very obviously just a battle for taking and protecting resources, which perhaps challenges our our traditional justifications for war in the first place. And honestly, David, if we're just facing a world where robots are fighting robots. We could save a lot of heartache. We could save a lot of pain if two countries would just show up in a field somewhere and see who could burn the biggest pile of money, because that's what we're doing at that point. You know, and speaking of absurdity that these robots point out, I just quickly want to insert at the tail end of this show 
um, the story of these robotic police officers. Uh, maybe you've seen them. They look like giant dumb trash cans with wheels wandering around malls, uh, mostly out in California. Um, and people have reacted really poorly to these automated uh, security officers. They try and make them look friendly. Maybe that's their mistake. People are knocking them over. They're pushing them into fountains. They're like kicking them when the robot's not looking. And these robots, uh, they, they store data. They, they facial track. They, they scan license plates. They, they do all sorts of things. And it's purporting to solve crime, to reduce crime around these what are typically very high-end malls and office buildings anyway. I don't know what crime they're talking about unless it's harassing homeless people, which is the vast majority of these robots and let's be honest, security officer's duty. But people don't respect these robots. They say, why do we need this robot guarding this stuff? Get this out of here. And we have a long tradition in media of saying, fuck these police robots, of things like RoboCop, where if you watch the movie wrong, you're like, yeah, RoboCop's awesome. But like, let's be honest, it's, it's a story about how these automated policing systems are terrible. A minority Report, um, The Matrix. <laughs> I mean, the whole movie's about them running away from robot police, basically. So when, when police are robots, when we take the human element out of that, all of a sudden everyone is like, yeah, fuck the police. These things suck. Why are they here? But you put a human in that stupid looking uniform and suddenly people are like, oh, respect the police. Do what they say. This is the authority. You have to listen to what they're doing. And I wonder what the disconnect there is. Uh, and, you know, as, as we replace our troops with robots, uh, are we going to see the same sort of disrespect? with uh, soldiers? Are we going to lose the hero worship of war and the idolatry of people out there bravely, quote unquote, uh, risking their lives out there defending our economic prospects abroad? Maybe. I don't know. Well, time will tell. It's food for thought. Time will tell. But Daniel, it's that time of the show again. What can we do about these lethal automated weapon systems and the future of our autonomous warfare? Is there anything we as citizens can do? Well, David, for all the discussion, the back and forth about our bans on autonomous weapons, useful? Are they necessary? Are they good? I think, again, one of the major pushbacks to these bans is that the technology is going to be developed regardless. But like we see with nuclear weapons, just because a technology exists does not mean that everyone has access to that. And as affordable as drones may be, the bottom line is that it's still not going to be easy to acquire um, autonomous drones or other military equipment on a scale that can reach weapons of mass destruction unless there are factories mass producing these products. And so I do think there is a lot of value in supporting a ban for the development of lethal autonomous weapon systems. Because imagine if all the major countries of the world came together and agreed, okay, we're not going to allow any companies to mass produce lethal micro drones. That would have a dramatic effect on the ability for people, terrorists, non-state actors, and state actors themselves to stockpile this technology that can be cheaply deployed to wipe out large segments of populations. I think that's a better direction than the Wild West approach that we have right now. I agree. That's a, that's a very hopeful, positive way of looking at it. But you know what? Fact of the matter is, I can go out and buy micro drones at the hobby store, at the, my local electronics store right now. And sure, they're not networked with cameras and, and C4s and on them. But, you know, all those little bits and pieces for building those drones, I've been commercialized and you can buy them for, you know, in some cases, $20, $40, as cheap as that. You're asking with these bands to take out this commercial market. And it's that much more unlikely to happen because of that. So maybe we as consumers cannot purchase these things and kill that market ourselves. 
Uh, of course, that's unlikely to happen, even though they are seen just as toys. But these toys can become tools, and tools uh, are all ultimately weapons. Beyond that, though, I want to shout out to the Google employees at Google who revolted, at least initially, against these Project Maven uh, programs. Uh, the drone assistance that Google was giving to the Department of Defense and were ultimately able to overturn the business prospects of these large investments from the military and say, you know what, we don't want Google to be like this. And if we uh, continue down this path, then we will resign or uh, like the several people who did resign more respect to them. Killing Google from inside with the labor that would ultimately be used to create these weapons is really shows us that the development of these technologies are in the hands of individuals and of workers. We can talk all day long about banning things at an international level, banning things from tech companies developing them, but ultimately all these things are designed by individual engineers, by software devs, by people, by labor. And the people working on these programs can just stop and say, you know what, no, this is wrong. And in the example of Google, they did. It worked. The development of this large program from a very large, important economic company was cut off. It stopped. And of course, these contracts will be awarded to somewhere else. If all these other companies refuse to work on these devices saying, we don't want to live in a world where robots can be allowed to pick who dies, well, then we won't have those technologies. They won't exist. And so the hands of our future, the ability to resist autonomous weaponry, lies in those people who would be called on to make that weaponry possible. And more conceptually, going back to that point about the absurdity of war in the first place, if war ultimately is about securing resources and economic interests, then perhaps it would be best for us to support in any way we can an economy that moves away from extraction and exclusion. Because if we here in our respective countries had economies that were sustainable based on local resources, the idea of sending military equipment around the world to secure economic interest just wouldn't even factor into the equation. The necessity for an aggressive and expanded military force comes about as a result of economic insecurity. And the more we can do to increase our economic security by placing a value on local sustainable resources, the better off we'll be from a national security standpoint, from a local security standpoint, and from a global security standpoint. A lot to think about and a lot to be scared of, but that's how we roll here on Ashes Ashes. If you want to learn more about any of these topics, if you want to see that Slaughterbot video or read papers on all these subjects, you can find that and a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show, nor will we ever purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to crowd your news feeds. So if you like this show and you would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read them and we appreciate them. You can also find us on your favorite social network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we're going to be taking a wet and wild ride. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.